Let's turn our Bibles now again to the book of Ruth, 8th book of the Old Testament, page 222 in the Black Bibles in front of you. And we will continue this four-part series in the month of November on reversals in Ruth. We've seen two reversals already in this book. First, we saw how chapter 1 corresponds with chapter 4, that a lot of people are dying all over the place in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And that chapter 4, at the very end of the story, shows the birth of a baby and the continued lineage and life all the way to Jesus Christ. So from death to life was week one, and it is the two outer portions of the book of Ruth. One of the things I was reading this week, in fact, said that there is the same amount of words in the intro of verses 1 through 5 as there is on the appendix in the last part of chapter 4. So another evidence that this book is very uniquely and artistically designed in terms of its outer mirrors that are reflecting itself. Last week we were able to consider the next reversal, the reversal from widowed to married, and we saw the sacrificial love of Ruth to choose widowed life for the rest of her days, at least that's what she thought, as she, cho she chose to go with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back home to Bethlehem. And uh, it, show, it so worked out that as she went back to Bethlehem, she was able to meet a man named Boaz, and he ended up marrying her. And so that's the reversal from widowed to married. And Boaz took on the risk of marrying a woman who was a stranger, a foreigner. If you were to kind of put the people into class systems with the king being like the greatest, the number one, and then you take all the way down to the lowest of the low, Ruth would have been that like lowest of class. She was poor, she was widowed, she was a foreigner. She really had nothing going for her and for Boaz to marry her would have been quite a undertaking, you know, and he did it anyway. So we're going to look in in the next little section here, and we're going to see another reversal. This time, it's going to be in chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, the end of chapter 1, and we're going to contrast that with the end of chapter 3, and what we'll see very clearly then is that Ruth considers at the end of chapter 1, Ruth and Naomi, that is more so Naomi, that she's empty, she's got nothing and then when we contrast that with chapter 3, you're going to see that that same word empty is paralleling the end of chapter 1. And so there's again this mirror aspect going on in this book and showing you that, oh, she is not as empty as she thinks. So let's read this story in verse 19 and following. And to catch you all up, what's happened here, if you've not been with us, is there is a particular family that this book is about, the family of Elimelech. And there's famine in their homeland of Bethlehem. And as they experience this famine, they leave to a land called Moab, which is the arch enemy, one of the key rivals of the Israelites. And so this was not a good move for the family, as far as we can tell, to move eastward toward Moab, but they do. And as they do, they say they're going to stay a little while in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. They're going to sojourn. Well, sojourning led to stay a little longer and then eventually 10 years, and so it seems like their quick little jaunt to Moab ended up kind of settling down into, into Moab. And so what we have in the first five verses is a lot of death and darkness and pain and suffering. And it ends with a woman and her two daughters-in-law with dead sons and a dead husband, no grandchildren, and no hope, at least it appears. 
And then when you start looking at verse 6, you see that the Lord is providing land uh, blessing in Bethlehem. So there's food. And so they start heading back. And then there's this conversation about whether or not Ruth and Orpah, the two daughters-in-law, should stay with her. Because they're not going to be able to get remarried if they go back to Bethlehem. It's going to be pretty tough to try and find an Israelite man that would marry these foreign women. Like I said, they're kind of lowest on the totem pole. So Ruth decides to stay and is determined, as you see in verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And there's this beautiful poetic words of Ruth at the end of the section that we looked at last week. Orpah went back to her home and to her gods, but Ruth says, no, where you go, I go, where you lodge, I lodge, where your people are, those are my people, your God is my God. And that's where we pick up the story, is that they're now heading back and returning to the land. So verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I want to ask you three questions in this story to, I think, apply this story to our lives and help us not just read a story in God's Word, but let this story read us. And one of the big takeaways I see from these verses is that Naomi is really blind to what's going on because she just can't see that God is, in fact, blessing her. So question number one for you, are you blind to God's blessings in your life? Are you blind to God's blessings in your life. Naomi says she was full when she left, but she came back empty. This isn't true, my friends. She does not recognize the very thing we recognized last week. Follow the flow of thought by the author of this wonderful story. Notice very carefully the way he has crafted the story. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty, in verse 21. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara instead. Because of the Lord who has testified against me, the Almighty has brought this calamity upon me. As she says those words, the very next verse is what? So Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. Do you see what's going on in this story? I'm empty. I've got nothing. And Ruth is kind of back there going, <clears throat> or maybe she's sheepishly feeling like, so much for that sacrificial love. So much for, thank you. I appreciate your willingness to come back with me while I'm alone and widowed and older and no hope of having any children. Thank you. We don't see any of that. She comes back and she is bitter. She is upset. She does not see that God, in fact, is blessing her and that blessing is standing right next to her. 
Secondarily, she is not seeing that God is already blessing the land. The thing that brought them into this problem in the first place was right there in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was what? A famine in the land of Bethlehem. Verse 22. And now they're at the beginning of the barley harvest. Because what does verse 6 say? She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Right there in front of her as she returns back from from Moab to Bethlehem, not only does she have with her an amazing blessing, which becomes so abundant as the story gets untold, uh, unfolds. But also right in front of her is a blessed land. No more cursed with famine. This woman is so blind to what's going on in her life. And so I ask you, are you blind to God's blessings? Because it could be that they're right in front of you. It could be that there are blessings all around you, and this Thanksgiving season, we should be thankful and grateful for all of them. How many things are you taking for granted right this very moment? Let me give you five F's this Thanksgiving week for you to think about in terms of your gratitude to God's blessings. First, your family. Some of you might be gathering together for Thanksgiving, and you might be thinking, you know, I'm not so thrilled to gather with my family for this Thanksgiving. There's bickering, there's fighting, we don't get along. I know that many Thanksgivings are not always that pleasant. But can you be thankful at all for your mom and dad, for brothers and sisters if you have them? How about friends? If you're not thankful for your family, Can you be thankful for any friends in your life? Do you have any friends at all? I wonder if you've ever sat down with someone and they said, you know, I just feel so lonely like I don't have any friends. And that friend, you're kind of like, what about me? It's a little bit of Ruth and Naomi going on at those moments. How about your finances? Has God provided your financial needs? Do you have all that you need to get through the rest of today? You know, Jesus does not teach us, and God, give me my weekly bread or my monthly bread. Father, give us our daily bread. Do you have enough to get through the rest of this day as far as you know it? Do you think you have enough means around you? Because, friend, if you don't have enough food to get through the rest of this day, please come to my house, and you now will be provided for through me giving you food. Maybe even if you have no food in your kitchen or cupboard, God is providing right in front of your face me to provide you food, this church family, because many times it is people that God will provide the very lack that you have. And so I am not making that as a illustrative point. I mean, literally, if you have no food, our church would like to be the kind of church that we just read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and care for those who are needy and pool our resources together for those that cannot provide for their own groceries. We have a benevolence fund for this, in fact. So one of the means by which God provides is our family and our friends, but even provides finances through the local church. A fourth F. Are you thankful for your faith if you have faith in Jesus Christ? Or do you consider your faith as something that you mustered up on your own? 
instead of a gift that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, a gift that was granted to you so that no one would boast about their salvation. Or as even 2 Timothy calls, talks about our repentance that is granted to us. Repentance and faith, the two marks of what it means to be a Christian, are ultimately gifts from God. Philippians 1.29 says that it was granted to you that you should believe in Jesus Christ. Granted, like a gift. If you have faith this morning, if you could stand and sing these songs that we just sang this morning, Great Are You, Lord, are you taking it for granted that you even have that faith to stand and sing Great are you, Lord. Finally, a fifth F, your future. Most of us are complaining and worrying and get bittered by our futures. We're not sure what they're going to be. We may think they don't look very good, but my friend, if you know the scriptures, you already know your future. Do you ever take it for granted that you know that your future is secure? That you know that God has provided for you all that you need to have confidence to go through not just today, but the next day, and the next day, and the next. Well, I'd encourage you maybe over lunch today or throughout your time this week at Thanksgiving to consider just these simple five F's to see if maybe there's ways that you're taking for granted the blessings of God that are right in front of you, similar to what Naomi is doing. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to think about the blindness that you might have to understand who Jesus is. The Bible actually says that the reason you're not a Christian is because you're blind to see the blessing of Jesus Christ. If you want to read this in the Bible, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and it says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers and prevented them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you're a non-believer, if you don't believe in God right now, it is primarily because you have failed to see the blessing right in front of your face that God has come in the person of Jesus. It is not a nameless, faceless God. It is a person that has come. And he has provided everything you need in life and salvation by living a perfect life, by dying a death on a cross by rising again from the dead, by ascending to the right hand of the Father and promising to return to make a new heavens and new earth, the very future that I just referenced a moment ago. It's secure. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to ask yourself, is there a reason why you do not think Jesus is beautiful or glorious? Because fundamentally, the Bible says that's your biggest problem. You're failing to see the glory of Christ. And so what we do here at Embassy, not just every Sunday morning, but all through the week, our mission as a church is to open blind eyes by preaching Christ. Because the passage I just referenced in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of the stage has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so then we preach Christ. And then the God who said in the very beginning, let there be light, he shines light into the blind eyes of lost people. Or as Acts 26, 18 says, Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they will turn from darkness to light and to the power of Satan to God. So they receive the forgiveness of sins as a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Friend, do you see that as your mission as a Christian? 
members of embassy, do you realize that our mission as a church is to glorify Christ by making disciples through preaching the gospel? By preaching the gospel of Christ so that people will see the beauty and the glory of Christ and not be blinded by that amazing blessing that God has already provided for us. Maybe if we look a little further at Naomi in this story and understand why she was blinded to God's blessing, it will help all of us in our blindness to the blessings in front of us. So, second question. Is the reason you're blinded by God's blessings because of your bitterness? Or to put it more simply, are you blinded by your bitterness? Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? And I say it with excitement. I don't say it as like, huh, is is that Naomi? I'm not so sure. It's been 10 years. No, no, this is, is this Naomi? Is she back? Everybody, Naomi's back. That's the way this text should be read. The reason is because the word stirred is used. The word stirred, every time you read it in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, is the word hummed. And it's used in celebratory context. So do your word study and you'll realize that this word is a, an exciting hummed. It has an ear sound to the word, an onomatopoeia to it. The, the whole town was humming with excitement, buzzing, we could say. Wow, Naomi's back. Now remember, this is a small town. Bethlehem, as we know it, is not this big, large city like Chicago. If you've ever been in a rural, small town, everybody knows everybody. So the fact that this family is gone and then now returns, everybody's going to know, oh my, Naomi, she's back. Imagine going to Thanksgiving and having one of your family members not show up. And then the year after, and then the year after, for 10 straight years. And then finally, 10 years later, they come back. The whole family would be stirred, wouldn't they? Especially if they were far off and you didn't know how they were. Now here's the interesting thing about this. Everyone seems stirred with excitement and joy, except Naomi. And in fact, it seems as like, in our lives, one of the reasons we get more and more bitter is when we see other people excited about the very thing that we're bitter about. Isn't that what's going on here? We see them growing with joy and excitement, and she is growing in deeper bitterness. So often our bitterness will grow deeper when we are failing to rejoice with those who rejoice. So she says in verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Now if you remember, Naomi means pleasant. Do not call me pleasant anymore. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Now remember, the names in this book, almost all of them have some deep significance to them. Bethlehem, the name of the town that we're talking about, it means house of bread. And the irony in this story is that the house of bread has no bread. Moab is the place that's called Moab. is uh, two, two kind of words put together, and it's who and father. So Mo would be the word who, and then father. So who's your daddy, if you wanted to put it in a modern way? Now, why is that interesting? Well, because Moab began out of incest in Genesis chapter 19. And there's a little bit of a play on words there. Moab, who's your daddy? Your daddy is an incest. 
Elimelech. His name means my God is king. But we know that in the days of the judges when there was no king, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, including Elimelech. Or Malon, his name means sickness, and he ends up getting sick and dying. And then Kilion, his name just means simply dying, and he dies. So do not pass over this little note in verse 20 that she says, do not call me pleasant, call me bitter. She has so identified herself with her bitterness. She is not saying, well, you know, guys, I'm really struggling here to be rejoicing with you all and be excited about my return. No, she has fully owned her bitterness. When we let our sin define us, I think this is when we are blinded the most to God's blessing. Let me say that again. When you let your sin define you, this is when you'll be most tempting or tempted to be blinded by God's blessings that are right in front of you. How many times as a pastor have I heard people say things like, you know, this is just who I am. I'm always going to struggle with this particular sin. I'm never going to change. Are you letting your sin define you in the same way that Naomi is letting her bitterness define her? Naomi is clearly letting her blindness, her bitterness blind her to what is clearly right in front of her. Ruth, the amazing sacrificial love of God is being shown to her through Ruth. I'm empty. I've got nothing. But let's not beat her up too much today or ourselves. Two things I want to point out about Naomi in this passage that even though I do think it's quite clear that she is in the wrong and that she is bitter, in verse 22 we see that she is returning. See that in verse 22? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned. It's repeated twice. You add it all up, that word return, you've now read it 11 times in chapter 1 if you read the whole chapter. I think that the author's trying to communicate something. Return, 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 return. There's only 22 verses. That means like every other verse. On average, you're reading return. It seems best to understand this word return as not just a physical return to Bethlehem, but also as a repentant return. For in fact, that is one of the most simple ways to interpret this word return, is to turn around like the word used in the Hebrew for repentance. You heard it actually earlier in the service today. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What's the next line? He returns. He restores my soul. That's the same word. To return, to restore. She's being restored back to her land. And the reason I bring this up is because one of the ways I think we should possibly be reading this book, and some of this is because of the controversy of when the book was written, but some scholars have argued that this book could have most likely been written during the time of exile. It's a post-exile book, and it's looking back at what God was doing in the days of the judges. 
Now, one of the reasons we know that it's a later writing is because it has to know that David already was king because of the way the book ends. So this wasn't written right around the time of Ruth. It was written much later. And so with that in mind, it's very possible that this story is a small sampling, like a real, true historical narrative that's used like a parable. Jesus does this at times, using real characters, but in a parabolic-type way, as an illustration. So it could be that Ruth and Naomi are examples to the rest of Israel about their own exile away from the land and that because of their sin they have been removed from the land and they've experienced judgment and death and loss but they need to return. They need to repent. And they need to come back to the Lord and realize that God has hesed love. We're going to unpack that next week, by the way. The hesed love of God through the kinsman redeemer. There's a way to read Ruth that's potentially not just about this one individual family, but rather for all of Israel. And one key clue to that is that last little part of chapter 4 that attaches this story to the greater story of Israel and King David and the ten generations that follows all the way up to David. So that's one thought, is that this is actually a bitter woman who is returning. She's actually an example of repentance. And I don't know about you, but I often find in this church and in pretty much any church, any Christian who's honest, our repentance isn't always wholehearted. Many of us repent, but we have bitterness still or other issues still. Maybe we should see Naomi not as the the villain and this terrible woman, but rather see ourselves as not much different. The second reason I don't want you to beat Naomi up too much for her bitterness, but learn from it, is because I think she has good theology. She says, it was because of the sovereignty of God that these things have come about. Look at verses 12 and 13 earlier in the story. You'll see this quite clearly when she's talking to her two daughters-in-law. Turn back, that word again, turn back. Turn back, my daughters-in-law. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then we see that in our passage in chapter 1 at the end, verses 20 and 21. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Her theology is good, I say, because she is saying that God is powerful and he is sovereign over both the good and the bad. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It was the Lord that took away. She acknowledges that. Now, she's not very happy about it, She is affirming the sovereignty of God. She's just not affirming the love of God. But one of the things we need to realize is that this is actually a poem at the end in our passage. Verses 20 and 21. When you look at it, you'll notice that she says, The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And then she says, The Lord. And then look very carefully with me at verse 21. I went away full. And then do you notice that in the ESV or most English translations, Lord is in all caps. Do you all see this? Now notice when you keep reading, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? And then when the Lord, the second time, 
all caps again, has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So if you look up, you'll notice this. There's a poem here. It's called a chiastic poem. It's how the whole book of Ruth is actually structured. Lord, Lord is on the, is on the inside, and Almighty is on the outside. And here's one of the reasons you know it's a poem, because normally when you say this word Almighty, you would use the word El Shaddai. But she doesn't. She, the author uses just Shaddai. And the only other time you see just Shaddai is in poems or in poetic literature. So it seems like what she's saying here is a song of lament, a poetic lament about what God has done in her life. And I think it's very important for us to see this because many of you are going through difficult circumstances and you might be falsely told or taught that it is wrong for you to talk to God about your problems or question them or, or even acknowledge that God was the one who brought them about. Now, she is lamenting. Throughout the whole Bible, we see men like Job, Abraham, Moses, David, the Psalms, Jeremiah, prophets like Habakkuk question God, say, God, if this is what you're like and this is what my circumstances are like, what's going on? That's exactly what she's doing here. She knows that he is the Shaddai, the Almighty. It's the word when you're saying he is all-powerful. There is nothing that can stop his hand. And then she's also acknowledging, but God, you are Yahweh, all caps, the covenant name of God, the God who has revealed himself as full of loving kindness and grace. What? I know that you're powerful. I know that you're sovereign. But I also know that you said that you would love us. And it doesn't look very loving when I look at my life. Friends, it might seem to us like that is a bad way to pray, but it seems like from Scripture that that is actually a fine way to pray when you bring your laments to God. What we often do is not talk to God about it, but complain and gripe and talk to other people. One of the first things we should do is pray through our tears. Read through the Psalms. Read through the laments of Scripture and realize that God does not zap her dead at that moment. Oh, what are you doing questioning me, saying that this is because of my hand? No, God is more than fine with people saying, God, you brought this about. You're the sovereign ruler over everything. So why is this going on? And as we see through Scripture, more often than not, God graciously deals with people, and so should we. If you're here this morning and you're going through difficult times, I don't think the best thing for us to say right now is to try and figure out, well, it's because of this. It's for us to pray with you. Pray through your tears, pray through your pain, and realize that yes, God is sovereign, but it's because of God's sovereignty that you can have great confidence and hope in the middle of your suffering. In fact, one of the things we need to realize is that many Christians throughout the history of the church have found great confidence through their suffering because God is sovereign. William Cowper is an example of this. William Cowper was, as one autobiographer said, someone who had an accumulation of pains, especially the mental pain of depression. He was uh, a man that his mom died when he was six years old. 
He was raised by his father who created all kinds of pressure that he would go into law school and created this terrible, tense relationship throughout their life. And it must have probably, as we can tell, contributed to many of his depressing thoughts and feelings. There were several different times where he attempted suicide but never was successful. He eventually died at the age of 69 in 1800 because of getting dropsy. After becoming a Christian, though, uh, he became friends with a man named John Newton. John Newton was a hymn writer, and one day, as they were friends, John Newton realized that William Cowper had a poetic gift, and so they decided they would write some hymns together. It ended up getting published into a hymnal in 1779. 208 hymns were written by Newton. You may have heard of them before. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. For a wretch like me, you ever heard that one? How about how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, or glorious things of thee are spoken, or come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Those are some of the hymns of John Newton. William Cowper, however, wrote such hymns like, There is a fountain filled with blood, or for a closer walk with God. And the one I want to quote from you today is, God moves in mysterious ways. It's one of my favorite hymns that I've ever read. It's put to music, but I don't think the music's very good. Maybe somebody will improve the music. Because listen to these words. You fearful saints, Fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Do not judge the Lord by your feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning frowning providence hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. They're unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err as we scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Do you see how William Cowper found not just theology in the Bible, but comfort in the sovereignty of God. In order to protect our hearts from bitterness, I think we need to believe that God is not just the sovereign El Shaddai, but he is in fact the covenant gracious God, Yahweh. Are you blinded by the blessings of God because of your bitterness? I would encourage you to pray a prayer of lament. Do it with other Christians. Help them point some of the blessings that you're unable to see because of your blindness. Just this week at our dinner table, we regularly do this little exercise to just have more adult conversation. So we ask our children, hey, can you give us a high and a low for the day? And it helps keep things somewhat simple, but at times they can get quite profound. And just this week, one of our children, who will be nameless, said, I don't have any highs. And then a few people started speaking up. Well, what about when you had an extra hour of recess? Or what about when you got this and that? And what about this? And before you know it, they're like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they started smiling on their face. And that moment, I realized, you know, sometimes we need people around us 
to help point out the very blessings in the current day of our lives. So, friends, this is why we gather together as a church, is to help point people that God in his sovereignty has not left us with just judgment, but God in his kindness is the loving, gracious, hesed God who makes covenants with his people and he loves them graciously. If we believe that God is both sovereign and powerful, but that he's also good, then I believe this will be the fuel to help you get through whatever trial you're going through today. Let's ask our third and final question. We've asked, are you blind to the blessings of God? Secondly, are you blind because of your bitterness? And thirdly, are you blind to the future plans that God has for you? Are you blind to the future plans God has for you? It's quite clear that Naomi cannot see what's about to come. As we end chapter 1, we end with the barley harvest, and we have a glimmer of hope, but we have no idea what's just on the horizon. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I don't know about you, but one of the things I realized this week was if we take out verse 1, the story actually reads a lot smoother. So it says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then jump forward to verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. Now that flows very nicely in my mind. But in verse 1, we have this jarring interruption. And there was this man named Boaz, who was a worthy man. It's actually the word for like strong and mighty, and it also has connotations of being wealthy. So he's like this really prominent dude in Bethlehem. And he's from the clan of Elimelech. Oh, that's interesting. And his name was Boaz. And so at this point, I think we got to ask ourselves, why insert in that detail there? I think it's because right after chapter 1, when things are about as dark as they could be in the heart of Naomi, even though there's all sorts of blessings all around her, here comes another example of God's kindness. Hey, there's a man named Boaz from the family of Elimelech. A man who has strength and might and wealth. In other words, let's just summarize it, God's doing something. She doesn't know it yet, but right there in verse 1, God's doing something. Verse 2, we have Ruth say, let me go glean. And if you don't know what that word means, gleaning is the laying out extra leftovers. So imagine that you grow some crops. And let's say you have 100% of the crops that grow. You're told in the Old Testament not to get 100% of those crops for yourself, but you're to leave the edges of the crops for the poor. It was a welfare system where the people who were poor, who didn't have money and economic situations to have their own fields and their own crops, they could go to wealthy people like Boaz and take food from their fields. Now, the interesting thing here is this welfare system requires these people to actually work and do it. So that's why Ruth is saying, hey, I want to go work and glean from the field. 
But isn't it interesting that in God's law, the covenant God, the gracious God in the Old Testament says, do not lick your bowls clean and keep everything for yourself. Do not be a hoarder. Be generous. When you have a harvest at the barley harvest, don't take all 100% of the crops. Let some go for the Ruths and the Naomi's. God's at work by giving his law and using God's people who are generous like Boaz in allowing people to glean. Third thing you see. She set out and went and gleaned in the fields of the reapers. And then look at this text. See these words. I'm not making this up. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. It's very simple and clear, okay? This text is saying that Ruth did not know about Boaz. She's just walking around and be like, okay, I've got to find a field and one where there's gleaning going on. Oh, let's go to this one. And it just so happened that it ended up being Boaz's field, the one of two guys in all of Bethlehem that is from the family of Elimelech. It just so happened. In fact, in the Hebrew, it is like a doubling, repeating word, so you don't get the sense of it in here. It's like, it happened by chance. Like, it was chance on chance, almost repeating itself to underscore the point. Like, this was like, oh, it just so happened. And remember the Jewish worldview. God is sovereign over everything. In fact, they do not make decisions without like rolling dice and casting lots and saying, well, God's sovereign even over that, so we won't leave anything to chance. We'll just let God decide. That's the Jewish worldview. So this is an ironic phrase here that they would say, oh, well, just by chance she happened to land at Boaz's field. Do you see what's going on in this story? God is at work all over the place. But Naomi has no clue. No clue. Blind, not any fault of her own, not blind by her bitterness, just unaware that God is working behind the scenes through generous people like Boaz, through the everyday tasks and everyday, ordinary, mundane goings and comings. Do you notice that the book of Ruth has no overt miracles? There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no healing anybody. There's no... Rods turning into snakes and rivers turning into blood. We've got none of that. What we have is the sovereign God working through ordinary people in the everyday situations. I don't know about you, but there's times where I think that's actually more comforting to hear week in and week out. That what you and I need to be reminded of is that God, even today, even right now in our lives, is working through just ordinary mundane things. If you don't believe me, let me give you a story to illustrate this. It just so happened is the name of this story. A man named Kent Hughes is the pastor for a long time at the college church in Wheaton, right down the street from us. So at Wheaton, he and his wife went in to a hospital and went into a routine surgery. And his wife named Barbara went in the surgery and they thought, be in and out, no problem. He's waiting in the waiting room. And it just so happened that his niece, who was working at this hospital, walked through the waiting room. Now, the niece says that normally, because of where she works, she never walks that direction. And she never knew that they were there on that day. And it just so happened that she ran into Kent in the waiting room while 
Barbara was in surgery. He explained the situation, said, oh, I'm sure she'll be fine, and then they said their goodbyes, and she walked on about her business. Well, Kent decided that after surgery was done and they got report that she was, everything was good and she's all closed up and in recovery, he went home to grab some things. He gets back and is preparing for the overnight stay as she's recovering from this surgery and he sees the family a little upset because word had come that she was not recovering well and that her blood was not clotting and in fact she was hemorrhaging. So she was back in surgery, and surgery went on for the next five hours or so. And the situation's not looking good, and everybody's thinking, ah, I think she's going to die. It just so happened that this niece decided to walk back and give a card or some magazines to help her through her recovery time, and overheard one of the church members, because Kent Hughes is a pastor, like I mentioned, at this time of college church. So the church staff is now there. Everybody's like franicking and praying, and they're on their knees. And she's like, what's going on? Oh, no. She heard somebody say, yeah, her blood's not clotting. She's hemorrhaging. She's going to die from blood loss. It just so happened that she heard that conversation. Because when she heard that, it jogged her memory that 10 years ago, before she was working at this hospital, she was in nursing school or medical school, and she was bored one day, and so her and her classmate decided to start testing their blood and figuring out what their blood was like. And through those tests, they realized that this niece, Suzanne is her name, Suzanne has a very rare blood condition. And it often leads to not clotting easily and hemorrhaging. So she shared this information with the nurses and doctors, and it just so happens that Barbara has the same exact issue. With this new information, she was able to get a new treatment, and her life was spared. It just so happened that Suzanne helped them out and walked through the waiting room. And just so happened that one day when she was bored, sitting around in her class when there was nothing else to do, she said, hey, why don't I just test my blood? Do you not see that in the mundane, everyday activities, God is at work? And you have no idea what the future may hold like Naomi. But God is, in fact, doing something. And as we close this story, we look at the end of chapter 3. And we'll fast forward to its parallel mirrored side. And we notice in verse 14 and following that when Boaz and Ruth are together, they were laying at Boaz's feet till morning, but arose before one could recognize one another. And if you're not familiar with the story, you might be like, whoa, what went on then? Come back next week and find out. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. And she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley have gone, have, he gave to me. For he said to me, now remember how chapter 1 ended. I left Bethlehem full, but I came back empty. Keep that in mind. He said to me, you must not go back. And it's the same exact word, empty. And we have it here, empty-handed. You must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. Do you see 
The story of Ruth goes from death to life, from widowed to married, to emptied to full. Ruth's arms are full, probably more literally her back. We don't know exactly what this measurement is, but one resource that I came across said probably about 80 pounds worth of barley. I mean, just imagine this woman carrying on her back all of this barley back to her mom. Months and months worth. God does this. God intervenes in such a way when you feel like there is nothing and you're empty, there is resurrection on the other side. There is a meeting that happens, and when that meeting happens, it leads to an abundance of blessings so that you are full, you are overflowing with fullness. That's the story of Ruth, at least one way to tell it. And so I ask you, do you feel like God is worthy of your trust and that he will provide all that you need? John Flavel is an old Puritan author who says, just like in the old Hebrew scriptures, you need to read backwards. Did you all know that? That Hebrew was written backwards, like from right to left. And so when you open, you actually start at the right side and then you go backwards, at least backwards to us. So John Flavel says, a lot of times in our lives, we need to read our lives backwards. That way, we can see God's plans for us. Start there, and then move backwards. Are you blinded by your future? Well, yes, you don't know what will happen the rest of today or tomorrow. But then there's no. You know that the God of the Bible, he is a God of resurrection. He is a God of life, out of death. He is a God of fullness out of emptiness. He is a God who takes widowed people who have no chance of getting married and he blesses them with a great marriage. We might be blinded by the particulars about our future, but you are not blinded by your future because your future, if you're a Christian, is secure in Jesus Christ. Start backwards. Start at the end and go backwards. New heavens, new earth. Christ reigning and ruling. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Christ rising from the dead. Christ dying on the cross. Christ coming down onto the earth and incarnating for us. Christ being born, born of a woman, out of the family of Boaz and Ruth. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this story we thank you that this story is much more than a small little story about a few ordinary people in Bethlehem. We're thankful that as we read this story, we see the sovereign God who rules and reigns over all. The sovereign God who is both Shaddai and the God who is Yahweh. The covenant God who keeps his promises, who loves his people, who is gracious and patient with us even when our repentance is half-hearted, even when we're bitter and we're confused and we don't understand. God, I pray that you would help many of us in this room who are hurting to lament. You'd help us as a church to provide for the needs of those who are poor like Boaz does for Ruth and Naomi. God, give us these graces and help us to turn away from our sin, to repent of our sin and put our trust fully in Jesus Christ, the God who has already provided for us in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Our future is secure, and for that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.